0: Ephesians chapter 1. These holiday weeks, I'm always impressed by anyone who comes back for sermon number three in the course of a few days. And of course, I worry that I may not have much new to give you, but that's all right, I guess, as we recount uh, the same story week by week here uh, in this place. Ephesians 1, and we're considering the canons of Dort and uh, going to various places in Scripture that bring these truths to light. This uh, just recently had the uh, 400th anniversary of the convening of the Synod of Dort. Uh, Considering tonight both the third and fourth uh, main points of doctrine, which is uh, human inability and then uh, conversion unto life in Christ. And so we're going to go to perhaps a different sort of place than you would normally go in Scripture to pull that out. But there's a reason for that. In Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15, our passage tonight really will focus on 18 through 21, but we'll read all of 15 through 23 to get a sense of of the context here. This is God's word. It is given to his people for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything In every way, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. It's interesting if uh, you sometimes I've seen a couple of uh, shows or things on TV that have these illusionists or some people may call them uh, magicians. And uh, it's always striking to me how much attention they can can still garner. You know, we basically know now that it's all sort of sleight of hand. They have some kind of trick to what they're doing. But people are attracted to just watching them do what they do. And I think there's something to it is that they're, they're drawn to even this, this sense of possessing some sort of power that goes beyond what a normal human being would have. There's sort of this mind trick that's going on with it. We see something... Related to that, but, but even much further when it comes to celebrity culture, the worship of celebrities, or even certain political figures. You see them go through places in public, and, and people are falling over each other, trying to get a glimpse, trying to get clothes, you know, obsessed with uh, taking a picture with them on their phone, or various kinds of things. There's this, this sense that human beings are drawn to power, And certainly that is no different when we think about God, but the message is much better because we have a powerful God, certainly relative to everyone else in the world, everyone who would uh, feign to have some sort of power, they are all pretenders. And it is God who is the one to whom no one can compare. No one can compare to the power that God specifically displays in his son, Jesus Christ. But uh, the the, the driving point for us tonight is that the power that he displays in Christ, he allows us to share in that power uh, for our life in the gospel. And there are many implications that we can draw out for that. But it makes several points for us, one of them being that the power that God displays in Christ is immeasurably great. And when we think about our sinfulness, when we think about the fall into sin and human inability to believe in the gospel, we understand that it was an immeasurably great power indeed that the Lord must possess. So here's our life-transforming reality tonight. We must rejoice in the solidarity and unity drawn between Jesus Christ and believers. For it is there that we learn and understand that what God has accomplished in Christ is what he accomplishes for those who believe. We learn of these things tonight by going to a passage which focuses more on what God has done in Christ. And we're thinking about uh, human inability and conversion, but this passage talks a little bit more about what God has done in Christ. But if you notice... Paul is, is reporting to the Ephesians on his prayer for them. He's saying, this is how I pray for you. He's saying, I want you to know these things. I want you to grow in your knowledge and understanding of these truths. And I want you to know the exact similarity between the power that works in Jesus and raising him from the dead, seating him at the right hand of God the Father. That the exact similarity between that power and power and the power that works in you. And that's what the, the canons of Dort do, and they're the third and fourth main points of doctrine. I'm, I'm not a, a, an historian by trade, so maybe I shouldn't be commenting on this, but I always find it interesting that you have the first main point of doctrine, second main point, and then the third and fourth together. And the third is human inability, the fourth is conversion is a work of God. And I think... The reason they did that, perhaps, is more just a comment on my part, but why they would have been led to keep those two things together is that uh, you can't talk about one without talking about the other. Yes, human beings are in bondage to their sin. They're unable to escape their bondage of sin by themselves. The wonder of the gospel, the wonder of God's word, is that God has seen fit uh, to give us eternal life in Jesus Christ. So a couple of, of uh, ideas as we go to the text. Uh, being raised from the dead, being seated in heaven. Being raised from the dead and being seated in heaven. Something that we need to understand is uh, the close connections that are drawn between our passage in chapter one and really perhaps the crown jewel of the Christian life passage in chapter two. Uh, when I considered what I might preach for, for this study on this point, I thought, well, we could go to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It begins with human uh, inability, death and sin. You are dead in your transgressions and your sins. It names our redemption. It says you're made alive in Jesus Christ. And then it it ends with God has now created you for good works, that you would glorify him. And so it has sort of every step uh, of the Christian life. And right in the middle of that passage by Paul, he says a couple of things that are really interesting, particularly if you think about it in connection with our passage in chapter 1. Paul has established that the Ephesians were dead in their transgressions and sins. And then he says this in verse 4, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Dead in transgressions, raised up with Christ, seated in the heavenly places. If you're paying attention to the reading of our passage in chapter 1, you will see that there's a close connection here in Paul's thought, because this is exactly what he says that God did in Jesus. He raised him from the dead, and he seated him in the heavenly places. But first, of course, we should acknowledge uh, what Paul is doing here. In order to be raised from the dead, of course, one has to be dead. And so that tells us, that confirms for us that Jesus Christ, in his human nature, he died. And it was a real death, and it was a death of substitution. We can connect that to the life of Christ. We can also connect Paul's thought to our own lives, dead in your transgressions and sins. We're unable to escape that bondage, and that's what we learn in the Canons of Dort. For instance, Article 1, third and fourth main head of doctrine, says this. Human beings have brought upon themselves blindness, terrible darkness, futility, distortion of judgment in their minds, perversity, defiance, hardness in their hearts and wills, and finally, impurity in all their emotions. This doesn't mean, of course, that we are as evil as we could be, and we rejoice that that is not the case. But every part of us is infected with this corruption of nature. This renders us totally incapable, as I've mentioned. Article 3 says this, Therefore, all people are conceived in sin, are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of their regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such reform we cannot escape any of uh, the uh, all of these things this bondage to sin this is because and this highlights that it is only Christ who can save it is only Christ who can save the canon's go on to specify something that's important for us to understand we can't learn about Jesus Christ by looking at rivers and mountains And we don't don't get to it through nature. We don't get through it through the law. As much as we may render worship to God, being made alive in Christ and, and walking beside a river or looking at a mountain, we might be reminded of the glory of God and the glory of our Savior. But we cannot learn of Christ at the first simply by looking at rivers and mountains. And of course, the law, the law of God, the unchanging law of God, cannot be our ticket out of our sinfulness. What does the heidelberg catechism say we through the law we increase our guilt every day because of the law we have a debt that we cannot pay and it only gets deeper and deeper as time goes on we think about this and uh, something interesting that's going on in ephesians and something important to understand about the context is paul talks about sinfulness and he talks about the power that has overcome our sinfulness Think about Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. And I know I'm kind of oscillating between chapter 1 and chapter 2, so which one am I really preaching? I don't know. I guess you can pick. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and then listen to this, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We don't see this kind of language too often in the New Testament. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. Very spiritual kind of language. And something you have to understand about the context of Ephesians is that this was a place where there was extensive magic and occultic practice and dark arts that were going on and happening. Acts 19 actually gives us a fascinating look into this reality. Acts 19, there were some... Jewish exorcists who are trying to engage in some kind of spiritual practice for their own monetary gain, and so they see Paul, and they see the miracles that Paul is doing in the name of Jesus Christ for the spread of the gospel, and we know that Paul wasn't doing it for his own monetary gain, but these Jewish exorcists are saying, well, look at what Paul's doing, he's using the name of Jesus Christ, and all of these amazing things are happening. All of these miracles are happening as he invokes the name of Jesus Christ. And so they say, well, maybe we can also invoke the name of Christ. And so that is what they try to do. They find themselves in a situation that is sort of rife with this this spirituality. And they say something to the effect of, uh, we we command you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. To make a long story short... There's a demon possessed man that basically says, I know who Jesus is, I know who Paul is, I don't know who you are. And so this demon possessed man basically jumps on these Jewish men and chases them out, and they are humiliated. And so Acts 19 goes on to say this it's amazing what actually becomes of this situation. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of, them, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Interesting that people from this situation... They don't necessarily have regard for this demon-possessed man. They have regard for the name of Jesus. And they have regard for the power of the name of Jesus. And that these men who are trying to use it for their own gain, they did not know that power. They could not harness that power. We make a point of this tonight because it highlights the way the Ephesians would have thought about these things. That why they would have had regard for a God who was able to put such power on display through Paul. In their city, in their place in which they lived, that was just had this rampant spirituality everywhere they went. Everything was to be couched in these struggles that were happening in the spiritual realm. This probably tells us why Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter six talk to them about the armor of God. And why it's the book to which most of us would go if we want to know about spiritual warfare. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the principalities of this present darkness. Of course, we know the way that Paul talks about this. The way that we can understand this account in Acts is that there's not really—it's not as if there's a pantheon of gods. The Ephesians would would say, "Wow, this." This Jesus, he must be like sort of first place in this pantheon of gods. No, there's, there's God, and then there is everything and everyone else. Of course, the devil, the enemy of the Lord, has blinded the minds of many people in the world in thinking that this god or that goddess might be their source of power that uh, they would need. So in Acts, Christ's power is put on display I think it's also interesting, those who are engaging in this pagan idolatry, they bring their trinkets, their instruments of worship, their idols, they destroy them as a way of saying, I belong to Christ. I worship Jesus. I serve him alone. recently read an account of a Presbyterian pastor uh, to part of a Native American culture in, in, uh, in this country. This is going way back, 1800s. He had many converts, and uh, one of the leaders of the tribes brought sort of this important idol, this trinket to him, gave it to his Christian pastor, said, I want to be rid of it. I, I came to the Lord many years ago, and I kept it in my house because I sort of was still engaging in this superstitious thought, I want to serve Jesus, I want to serve Christ, I want to serve him alone. The story actually ends, very sadly, a hundred years later, the same denomination, PCUSA, that had sent this man out to minister to him, a hundred years later took that same idol, returned it to the Native American tribe said we need to have regard for the way that historically these people have worshipped. We need to understand and to know that perhaps their way to God is just as legitimate. Important for us to keep this passage in mind, particularly as many people who would identify as evangelicals, even in our own circles today, say similar things about the the kind of pagan idolatry and worship that we see in our own lands and throughout the world. Christ alone. Saves. And when people come to Christ, they serve him and they follow him alone. We should recognize in all of these things that our sinfulness, that the, the spiritual enemies of God, all of these things are a formidable foe. And Paul counts all of them together. Our sinfulness, uh, the, the darkness, the evil that is in our hearts, the darkness and the evil that is in the world, but he points us to a greater power. And just as the Ephesians should be impressed, and just as the Ephesians should be comforted, so we should be too. Ephesians 1, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And he wants them to understand, to grow in their knowledge of three things. He says three things, each one of them is longer than the previous. So he's giving emphasis, he's building sort of a crescendo, and the last phrase that he gives is the most important. So these are the three things that uh, he wants them to know and to understand, and this will be different than it it occurs in uh, the Bible that you probably have in front of you, but I think this is closer to what Paul had said. He wants them to understand, first, the hope to which he has called you, Secondly, the glorious riches of His inheritance in the saints. Thirdly, His incomparably great power for us who believe in accordance with His mighty strength. So the hope to which He has called you, the glorious riches of His inheritance in the saints. Thirdly, His, incompar- his incomparably great power for us who believe in accordance with His mighty strength. Each one a little bit longer than the previous. So his emphasis is building, it's going to the end. And what what he gives emphasis to is the incomparably great power for us who believe according to God's mighty strength. That's what he wants them to know. The supreme greatness of the power that is at work in Christ is the same power that is at work in you. That's the upshot of this passage. Paul saying, look at what God has done in Christ. He does that. He gives you that power. That power is the same power that works in you in overcoming your sinfulness. He put this power on display, of course, when he raised Christ from the dead. It may be sort of normal for us to talk about that, to talk about the resurrection, but the resurrection of Christ was unlike anything that had ever happened before unlike anything that anyone had ever seen before. Surely, perhaps even in Ephesus, there had been occultic dabbling in this, this kind of thing, raising people from the dead. There may have been imitations around this kind of thing, or people who had made claims to the ability to, imita- to uh, manipulate life and possessing of that power. Jesus himself, of course, had raised Lazarus and others But the resurrection of Christ itself was different. Why? Because he was raised to something new. He was raised to new life. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he had to die again. Death no longer, of course, has mastery over Jesus Christ. So God raised him, and he seated him at his right hand. And so how do we connect all of that to what Paul says? Well, he wants us to know his incomparably great power for us for us that little phrase for us it makes all of the difference in the world without that little that little preposition for us there is nothing that connects this work of god to our lives sure god may have incomparably great power sure god might be the king of kings and the lord of lords sure god might be the maker of the heavens and the earth but unless there's those words for us there's nothing in which we can take comfort so thanks be to god for those tiny little words god could have put his number on display in a number of ways god would have been just in leaving us in our sinfulness but thanks be to god that he showed his power in saving us this phrase could actually be translated into us into us which even drives it drives it home in, in a clearer sense in a more powerful sense this is something that works In us. He also says it's for us who believe. For us who believe. So he assigns the greatest importance through faith. It is through faith that all of these things become our own. Centrality to the Christian message is that we are to have faith in Christ. And that's how we share in those blessings. Article 14, for instance, uh, talks about all of this. And it's, it's dealing with the way that God gives faith. Listen to these words. Uh, Talking about faith being a gift of God and and how he does that. In this way, therefore, faith is a gift of God. Not in the sense that it is offered by God for people to choose, but that it is in actual fact bestowed on them, breathed, and infused into them. Nor is it a gift in the sense that God bestows only the potential to believe, but then awaits assent, the act of believing by human choice. Notice how they're saying it from every different angle, right? Right? You have any conception in your mind that faith is something that is a choice of the human being primarily, you are wrong, right? Rather, it is a gift in the sense that God who works both willing and acting and indeed works all things in all people and produces in them both the will to believe and the belief itself. Produces in us both the will to believe and the belief itself. It is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. And how it is driven home into our lives and to our hearts is when Paul says this is for us it is for us So then you get to chapter two uh, and if you're you know sort of a, a Greek novice like myself, certainly not a Greek expert but you know you try to know all your words and you say, okay, I know what that is, I know what that verb form is, this will help me say this and explain that. You get to chapter 2 and Paul is throwing out these words. You have no idea what he's saying because he is, he's literally inventing words as he's talking about what it is that God does for us With Christ. This this one word for made alive with Christ or raised with Christ or seated with Christ. He he makes up these words. He claims them uh, as the Christian's own in order to describe what it is that God does with Christ. And what he is saying is that the life and the victory of Jesus Christ is the same victory that is experienced in the life of those who believe. It's the same one, connected Our resurrection does not happen without Christ's. Our spiritual awakening does not happen without Christ being risen from the dead. Our being seated in the heavenly places does not happen without Christ being seated in the heavenly places. We are not raised like Christ. We are raised with Christ. The upshot of all of this is that we can look to Christ as the source of confidence and hope. Paul says, I pray that you might believe, that you might know, that you might understand the incomparably great power towards us who believe according to God's mighty strength. Paul is throwing synonyms together. He's throwing words upon words upon words in order to drive home this point. This is a powerful God. This is a powerful God who works in you. And it has to be a powerful God in order to overcome your sinfulness. It has to be a powerful God in order to grant you new life in the midst of this age. It's going to be pulling upon the strings of your old corrupted nature. Paul says, I want you to understand, I want you to know, this is the God who works in you. This is the God who promises to finish his work in you. This is the God who promises to sanctify you. So when Paul says in various other places in in his letters, I want you to consider yourselves as dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is exactly what he is talking about. So draw out some implications as we close tonight in this short consideration of this wonderful passage. The first is this. Our being raised and our being seated and exalted is an act of God. It's an act of God. It, has, it is not an act of man, it is not something that we could accomplish on ourselves, it is not a reality to which we could assent, it is an act of God. Article 10 in the Canons of Dorrance, conversion is the work of God, says this, the fact that others who are called through the ministry of the gospel do come and are brought to conversion must not be credited to human effort. As though one distinguishes oneself by free choice from others who are furnished with equal or sufficient grace for faith and conversion. No, it must be credited to God. It must be credited to God. Just as from eternity God chose his own in Christ, so within time God effectively calls them, grants them faith and repentance, and having rescued them from the dominion of darkness, brings them into the kingdom of his Son in order that they may declare the wonderful deeds of the one who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light and may not boast in themselves, but in the Lord, as apostolic words frequently testify in Scripture. What a wonderful summary of the Christian life. Conversion is the work of God, so what does that mean? God gets the glory. God gets the glory for giving us life in his Son. God gets the glory for granting us faith in Son. Jesus Christ, in order that we may, what, declare the wonderful deeds of him who has called us, in order that every day that we live, we might understand and we might know. Whether we're singing, great is thy faithfulness, or we're singing in Christ alone, we're talking about God's providential hand upon us, his love, his care for us, or we're talking about what he has done in the history of redemption. We're saying we're declaring what God has done, it's all about him, it's all about glorifying Him. And as we glorify Him, what do we do? We enjoy Him. We enjoy Him. He is is the sustenance, He is the nourishment that our souls need. Would that we would learn in this life to have God, to have nothing but God, is to have more than enough. Secondly, another implication, the power which raised Christ from the dead works in us. The power which raised Christ from the dead works in We've been talking about this, of course, but uh, it's important to draw it out as an application for our lives. The Ephesians were impressed with the power of the true God. Wow, this this Jesus is really someone we should consider, someone we should uh, perhaps follow. We should be reminded at every turn, everywhere we go, God's grace and his power is greater than all of our sin. Even though our sin is a worthy foe, God's grace and God's power is greater than any other principality, any other ruler in this universe. Any spiritual enemy that would uh, array himself against our God cannot compare to the power of God. Also, another implication God exalts believers. With Christ, So we talked about this this morning, but what that means is those uh, who have been granted this spiritual life in Christ share in the realities of the age to come. We share in the realities of the age to come. There's great assurance that comes from that, knowing that since Christ has been raised, so too we will be raised. And of course then Christ's heavenly reign affects our spiritual lives. We are to know that we are no longer dead in sin. We are are to know that we are no longer slaves to our sinful desires. We are to know that we are no longer worthy of wrath or children of wrath. That's important to understand too, that our position in Christ is absolutely certain and secure. And it doesn't change because of the life and the world around us changing. We are alive in Christ. Created for good works. All of these things come into our minds, and as our understanding of them increases, the life and the joy, the contentment, the satisfaction that we have in Christ increases. That's why Paul says, This is my prayer for you. I want you to know the incomparably great power that is working in you, which has worked in Christ and raising him from the dead, seating him in heaven above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Do you know? Do you know that that is what works in you? Lastly, this should affect our views of evangelism. This should affect our views of evangelism and what we think about the spread of the gospel. It's not going to be according to man-made strategies. It's not going to be according to the latest fad or the coolest idea. Christ is powerful enough to attest to the truth of himself. If God is sovereign, and if Christ truly is who the Bible displays him to be, then he can attest to the life that he gives, and he can do it as the gospel is proclaimed. No one is going to be saved by any kind of human idea anyways. Nothing that we can conjure up in our minds and by our efforts is going to be good enough to to have the amount of power that is needed to grant this life that we're talking about tonight. It can only come about through the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the one who died for sinners. Jesus Christ, the one who was raised. The church and the life of the church is often not going to make sense in the world or to the world. People are not going to, well, why, did, why do they keep gathering time after time? Especially when I download that pastor's sermon. It seems like the same thing over and over again. Well, why do they do that? Because it's, it, it, God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. So we preach the cross, the folly of the cross, and we proclaim it. And we say God is calling his own, his elect, through the proclamation of the gospel. All of these things should be uh, affected and shaped By the truth in this passage, incomparably great power, incomprehensible power, the Christ who attests to these realities is powerful to bring it about through him, through his power, through the power of the Holy Spirit, working through the word of Christ. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone who believes. May we rest in all of these things. May we know and may we grow in our understanding of the power that works in us, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the power of the Holy Spirit given to us by faith, and that as we live according to that power. May we glorify God more and more as we look to the great second coming of our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. We are thankful for these blessings that come to us through Christ, through His Spirit, who's seated on the throne. He is ruling and He is reigning. Our King will come again. Nothing will change about His reign. Simply people will fall on their knees and they will know that all the while He was King of Kings. He was Lord of Lords. And what was true Uh, In the unseen will become true in what is seen. Father, keep us us until that day. May we remain strong and steadfast. May we be a pilgrim people in this world who face what is coming at us knowing that you are sovereign, you're in control of all things. Whatever you ordain is right. Give us great joy in the midst of the good and the bad. Protect us, preserve us this week. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's close by singing number four.